when I was in law school, I had this professor who uh, said that being a lawyer was like having a front row ticket to the circus of human life. And I agreed <laughs> with him until I got into a multifamily residential. And I realized that's really where the front row is. Welcome to the Fueling Deals Podcast, the podcast that teaches how to accelerate your business growth through all types of deals. It's time to fuel up. So buckle in with your host, Corey Kupfer. There are only two ways to grow your business, organically through sales and marketing and providing great products and services, and inorganically through deals. Too many companies focus only on the first way, organic growth. Welcome to the podcast, which will help accelerate your business growth inorganically. My guests are a huge variety of deal makers and experts on all types of deals who have personal experience that can help you grow, get clear, learn best practices, and avoid mistakes. We discuss everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you could do even without significant capital. My guest today is Jeff Tolst. Jeff is a recovering attorney who spends his time as a real estate investor. He graduated early with honors from Michigan State College of Law, where he was uh, the graduating class speaker. He also holds an MBA. At 30 years old, Jeff checked the last item off his personal bucket list by climbing Machu Picchu. He was on top of the world, he, literally, it sounds like, right? He, he stood looking down at the lost Incan city. He had been living the life of his dreams. He was well-traveled, had previously visited the pyramids in Egypt, climbed to the top of Mount Sinai, swam with sharks in Belize, and backpacked alone around Europe. He was married to the girl of his dreams. He had a beautiful house in the suburbs and a thriving law practice. Two weeks later, he was in the hospital dying. His business was in disarray. His wife was barely holding it together, and he was on his way to bankruptcy. Well, listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave the part out of his bio that talks about his comeback because I want to hear that from him. Um, but, uh, and we'll talk about what he's doing now. Uh, but he's also the co-host of a, uh, of a show, uh, of a podcast that I watched several episodes recently, and it's really a lot of fun, uh, called The Old Fashioned Real Estate Show, where he hosts uh, the show and drinks bourbon old fashions, which is my drink when I'm not doing wine. Uh, and talks about real estate. So he and I definitely need to get a drink soon. But for now, it's great to have you on the podcast, Jeff. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. Well, excellent. So, so let's. Uh, uh, I, I definitely want to, you know, sort of tease what you're doing now. We'll get there. But before we do that, let's go back even before the law practice and the life changing event, and bring you back to when you were a little kid. What is it that you wanted to be when you when you grew up? What is it anything to do with a lawyer or real estate investor investor or at eight, ten, twelve years old? Was it something else? You know, I um I think it probably actually was I wanted to be a lawyer and real estate investor, uh, which sounds kind of crazy when you think about it. But I, I had a you know, I modeled after my dad. I think most people do that when they're young, they pick one of their parents and model after them. My dad was a lawyer, he had some uh, rental properties, and I think I just sort of had that in my head because I saw like you know, late night television shows of people like, you know, living in Miami with like, you know, by the pool drinking cocktails or whatever. I was probably a little older than eight or nine when I saw those, but it just sounded like a good way to live. I love that. And, you know, and I don't know if this would surprise you or not. It, it may not, but, you know, out of probably, you know, 35 or 40 episodes that I've recorded on this show and asked that question, uh, you may only be the second person who is actually doing what they thought they might be doing as a little kid. Well, I definitely didn't think I was going to be a podcast host. So, I mean, I, and I think you asked David Bach that in one of your episodes. <laughs> or no, it wasn't David Bach. It was one of the other episodes. You asked a host that if that was what his dream was. And uh, I, don't, I don't think that's, uh, that wasn't my plan. So, 
Yeah, yeah. Well, I I think we just uh, recently released David Trona Khan's uh, episode, and and I you know I remember asking him that, and he said, uh, and I said, you know, and I, I joked that podcasts didn't even exist back then, and and he, and he did point out, well, you know, there were radio shows, and and podcasts are sort of right. a version of that, but but yes, uh, yeah, that's but, the one I was thinking of. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and and what was uh, what was your what was your first real business? However, you define that. Uh, you know, I. I did a lot of things. Like when I was a kid, you know, I, I would sell, um, I, they had these things called, they call we call them slap bracelets. They were like a little, Oh yeah. You remember those? So like, I, um, there was a, there was a girl at, at this middle school I was at that her dad worked at a, some kind of novelty store and could buy them for bulk. And I would buy them for her for like a dollar and sell them to my uh, neighborhood kids and friends that, that didn't go to our school for uh, $2. So that was probably my first uh, real business. I think I made about $40 over a course of two weeks. I love it. I love it. Love it. So, uh, so yeah, so let's talk about, um, so you had all these amazing experiences and I'll tell you, you're a, you're a man after my own heart because, uh, I loved, you know, I just, I got back from the Paul, uh, uh, you know, about from when we we're recording this about a month ago, by the time this answer will be several months uh, older, but, um, you know, did some trekking out there and we took a helicopter ride to base camp Everest and like, uh, you know, so, uh, a lot of the experiences in your bio really, uh, appeal to me. So you, you know, you, you, you had the, all this adventure, you had a good thing going to law firm and then what happened? Well, you know, I, um, I, I got sick. I mean, I had, uh, I, I was actually in Machu Picchu, like it said in my bio and, uh, I just, I just had one other attorney working for me at the time. And I got a voicemail from him one day that said he was quitting. And, and, uh, you know, I was in, in South America at the time and that was kind of inconvenient. And then I got back, uh, we'd, we'd actually went into the Amazon and did a little swimming in the, in the river, which is actually not that smart because of the piranhas and stuff, but, uh, mm. it was a lot of fun, but we went down there and then, um, I got back home and I wasn't feeling well and I thought I'd maybe picked up a parasite or something, but uh, it turned out it was actually a fairly advanced case of, uh, of leukemia that I, they said I probably had for four or five years. I was young and dumb and not going to the doctor enough at that point in my life. So Wow. Wow. So that was uh, obviously a life-altering experience. And, uh, and talk a little, bit, a little bit how that led you into uh, you know, doing what you're doing now, which is... Uh, which is the more of the real estate investing side, but uh, no longer practicing law, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, I it was it was challenging. I mean, I had a law firm, and it was that time we were spending about four or five thousand dollars a week to keep the doors open, and I had one attorney leave, like I'd said, and then I couldn't work, so we were basically, you know, having to hire, you know, supplemental people to get the cases wrapped up and stuff, and I ended up with a big pile of debt, and um, and I ended up filing personal bankruptcy about about a year or so later. And uh, that was pretty tough because I'd been doing mostly bankruptcy work. So it's like you go in front of your uh, your colleagues right, and say, hey, guys, I'm bankrupt. I mean, mo- most people are pretty supportive because they knew what I was going through. But uh, but I, after that, I was like, man, I need to do something else. So, and I didn't ever want to be in that position again. right? I want to do something where I could control my income. And if I didn't show up to work, uh, I'd still get paid. Uh, and that's that's kind of the impetus behind getting into real estate. Great. So let's, you know, I'd love to hear more about what you're doing uh, specifically, but also in the context of, you know, for my audience uh, on fueling deals is, uh, you know, there's, there's at least two sort of uh, possibilities where people might have interest, right? You know, one, one, we do have some people who are in the real estate business and, you know, and professional investors or, you know, doing flips, rehabs, whatever it is. Um, 
but a lot of my, uh, you know, more of my listeners and more of my uh, clients are, are business people. Uh, and so some of them may want to make a change like you did. Uh, but also, I know many of them who are interested in getting into, you know, some aspects of real estate as, you know, on, on, sort of on the side or as a part-time thing, as a way to diversify. Um, so with that in mind, uh, talk to me a little bit about what, what you do, what you see in the industry, what the opportunity is out there for others. Sure, sure. I'm happy to do that. So um, what what I do specifically now is mostly um, residential multifamily real estate. Um, I do have a couple of commercial buildings as well, but um, but I'm I'm really um, I'm I'm long on the the residential stuff. That's the um, B and C class, kind of the you know the middle tier multifamily, low to medium income housing. And uh, the reason we got into that is really because it's a cash flow play. It's it's a thing where people are going to need a place to live. Uh, and we feel like it's something that they're going to need for a long period of time. So if I were looking to invest passively in real estate, I would definitely look for people that are putting together those kind of deals. And there, there's a myriad of people online that are selling, you know, smaller interests in larger deals. And we do a little bit of that as well. But, uh, um, but you know, that's the kind of thing I would be looking for. I think if I was going to invest passively in real estate, especially if I was doing it on the side, because buying like a duplex or something is it's uh i mean you got to be ready to take calls at three in the morning when someone's uh water line breaks or whatever else might happen so so you are you are also managing the buildings you're not outsourcing that to uh to uh, a professional management company uh, an um, outside professional management company yeah so uh it depends on the property i mean the ones that are buying me i'm in chattanooga tennessee so the stuff down here i do manage some of that um, myself. Um, I have a partner up in Michigan who um, who owns a professional property management company. We use his services for the properties that we have up there. And actually, I have a partner now in Chattanooga um, and, and my partner in the real estate show that we have. Uh, he also owns a property management company. So I, I think there's a little bit of a trend there. I think I kind of like <laughs> to tie in with property managers so I can let them do the hard work. Well, it, you know, it's such a, I mean, having... Um, represent, you know, I, I do represent some real estate uh, investors and clients, who, you know, and that kind of stuff. And also, uh, you know, there was a time where I had a couple of funds where we put together money and invested in some, uh, you know, uh, B properties as well, multis like you, like you do. And uh, I'll tell you, you, you learn quickly that, you know, either you or somebody's, you know, an outside company, whoever it is, needs to really have experience because there's a lot that comes up in managing uh, residential, pro- you know, multifamily residential property. No, yeah, no doubt about that. It's um, it's, it's actually uh, uh, when I was in law school, I had this professor who uh, said that being a lawyer was like having a front row ticket to the circus of human life, and I agreed <laughs> with him until I got into a multifamily residential, and I realized that's really where the front row is. So, I love it. So, so what is some of the uh, you know, so for somebody who's looking to get into this, or you know, in your experience, uh, you know, what are some of the challenges that do come up, whether it's with tenants, whether it's with figuring out how to, you know, find the right deals or structure the right deals. Uh, you know, what are some of the challenges that come up and, you know, what are some of the tips on how to do it right? Yeah. So, I mean, the challenges depend a little bit on where you are in the market cycle. And right now I think we're fairly late in the market cycle. Um, certainly not in 2010 anymore where, you know, you could pretty much uh, throw a stone and hit a good deal. Um, now you have to really, uh, you really have to dig in. So the challenge now is finding the right properties and the right deals. Uh, of course, and then and then identifying what the 
the current owners are doing wrong. Cause I mean, at the end of the day, it's, it's pretty much basic economics. People understand that if they raise rent and keep, you know, costs down, they're going to do well. Um, so if it's real easy, it's going to be done already. So you've got to, you got to understand what the weak points in the current management structure is. And then you also have to find deals where there actually are, you know, inefficiencies in the market. Yeah. And, and, and you, you know, that, that's really interesting, right at the place in the cycle we are now. And I'll, I'll, you know, uh, one of the one of the uh, challenges that I had back in the day is that we raised our funds in 2006 and invested in 2007, 2008. Uh, and of course, we all know what happened with the Great Recession. So, you know, we had we had different challenges. And, and uh, so maybe I'll ask, you know, we're not in one of those times now, but I, I don't know anybody who does this stuff who, who doesn't believe that we will at some point, whether I mean, we don't know whether it's six months or six years, but but at some point there's going to be a downturn because everything runs in cycles. So how do you prepare yourself for for that situation and, and what are the challenges and opportunities then? Yeah. So, I mean, what I've been doing is I've been thinking a lot about what, well, like I said, cash flow is important because at the end of the day, if you could buy stuff today in 2006 prices, you'd be real happy. So right. if you didn't have to sell in 2008, nine or 10, uh, and you, you didn't have to refinance during those times. So that's the other thing we try to get longer term financing now than we, we might've four or five years ago. Uh, but if you didn't have to refinance and you had enough cash flow and cash reserves to continue paying your mortgage payments and keep your properties up, um, I think you can just ride it out. I mean, that's really the best strategy that you can have is just recognize that you got to stress test really, really well and make sure that you know what's going to happen if, if rents go down uh, 10 or 15 percent. What, what does that look like? And and even in 2007, 8, 9, 10, rents didn't really go down. They were pretty flat. Uh, the problem was most people were buying based on the fact that rents were going up and they were modeling the stuff like, hey, rents are going to go up 10% a year or 5% a year. Um, and I see people starting to do that now. It's not like 2006 yet, but um, you know we're going to get there eventually if people uh, keep jumping into the market and, and especially with newer operators jumping in. Yeah, no, absolutely true. And it's, uh, it's interesting that... Um, you know, our experience was that we, um, well, most of our, our buildings in New York were, we, you know, uh, were easier, but we had, uh, we had made a play up in Lynn, Massachusetts, uh, which was uh, really a C building that was on the verge of, you know, becoming a B and they had, they had sort of uh, uh, the gentrification. Uh, that's not really the right word because it actually was, it wasn't gentrification because the, the, the uh, communities that were there stayed, which was nice. But the the uh, renovation and the, you know was was moving out like a, you know, they had done the downtown and then the next circle was getting strong. We were right outside of that, uh, and uh, you know one of the challenges we ended up with uh, is uh, vacancies in that property because a lot of people were from other places there, and they ended up the economy was so bad they ended up going back to their home countries because there weren't jobs. Uh, so we had vacancy issues. Uh, so that that could be a challenge as well, depending on what, what market you're in, right? For sure, yeah. And, and I think actually what, what you're talking about is something that um, that I spend a lot of time thinking about is especially as we grow, it's, you want to stick to markets you really know because, you know, you might think, hey, it's not too far away. I kind of, I can get there and I can check it out. But if you don't really have good people on the ground and you don't really, you know, have a really, really, really understand that market, you can get yourself into trouble pretty quickly. Yeah, no question. And we, and, you know, we certainly learned that because we did, we did some really good deals in New York area and uh, had, had more challenge, you know, on the, on that more distant uh, deal that we did. Um, so, so interesting. So let, let me ask you something about do, do you, in terms of how you're financing your deals, 
Uh, are you raising outside capital? Uh, are you self-funding? If you're raising outside capital, are you doing it on a deal-to-deal basis or have you created any fund? Uh, uh, how, how are you doing that? Sure. So uh, most of our stuff we've actually self-financed. We, we were fortunate. We bought a lot of stuff cheap during, during the recession and uh, mostly single family homes. And we started uh, converting those over to multis about two years ago. Uh, so we, so the first several deals we did with the multis, we, we really were able to self-finance. Um, re- lately, we have been raising a little bit of outside funds. Um, we've been doing that on a deal-to-deal basis. We've done that in the form of, of private money lending, and we've done that also um, in the form of investor you know, groups. Um, and it just depends on the deal. If we find the right deal, um, one thing you know is that if you're putting 20, 30% down on deals over and over again, you're going to run out of money eventually. doesn't matter how successful you are. Right. You keep doing deals, you're going to need to need to raise some money from somewhere. But there's a lot of money out there. There's a lot of money on the sidelines right now that, you know, it's making one or 2% that, that, you know, people, you can present them an opportunity that's fairly conservative to make them seven or eight, 9%. And they're, they're, they're excited to jump at that. Yeah. So that leads me. So, you know, you mentioned those kind of numbers. So, so, uh, to the extent you're comfortable, uh, you know, t- talk to me a little bit about uh, about you know deal structure and wh- you know what kind of uh, you know are they getting any kind of preferred return? Uh, you know what how are you structuring your investment deals? Yeah, sure. Um, so you know each it's de- very deal specific. So we're we're looking at the individual property and we're kind of saying, hey, what what makes sense for this property? And and it's really about finding a return that's going to satisfy us on the entrepreneurial side to make sure that we're we're protected, but also you know even more important than that to make sure that the investor capital is protected because um, one thing we we've always had as a philosophy is that. That uh, if if we wouldn't put our mom's deal in in you know our mom's money or like her last ten thousand dollars in the deal then then uh, we we don't want to take any money on it. So if it's one thing to lose your own money, it's another thing to lose other people's. But sort of an aside there. But to answer your question, yeah, we use we've used preferred rates of return. Um, we've used uh, um, you know we've used kind of like um, uh, reduced equity positions like waterfalls and things like that a couple of times. We really try to keep it simple right now. So it's, it's understandable for the investors so they can look at the deal and say, yeah, I understand what I'm getting paid and how I'm getting paid. And it's just going to be deal specific as to what that looks like. Great. And you alluded to something that I'd love you to talk about because it certainly was something that I experienced and, and I've seen clients of mine who some of them handle it really well. And some of them, it's a, it's a big challenge, which is that, um, I'll say, let's call it opportunity slash burden of being responsible for other people's money, right? And, you know, there's a certain, I, I mean, listen, there, there are certain people out there, which I know you're not one of, and I'm certainly not, and, and, and you know, I don't work with any clients who are, who, who don't really care about the money they're raising for investors and are willing to, you know, take whatever risk and they don't care what happens to it. I'm not talking about those people. I'm talking about the majority of us who are responsible people. Uh, you know, there's a certain sort of, you know, mentality and a certain uh, pressure when you take other people's money that some people deal with well and others don't. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, I I think actually maybe some of my experience in law helped me with that a little bit because you're often, you know, practicing law holding clients money and things like that. And you just really have to think about what's in their best interest all the time. And you got to kind of make that your, your priority. And so, yeah, there's definitely pressure in in one way. That's why we did a lot of the deals ourselves. 
um, partly because they were you know good deals and we like to make money and we had the money to do it, but but also because there's something refreshing about using your own money. You can be more flexible with what you do. You can take more risk, I think, with your own money than you can with someone else's money. So so there's some advantages to that. But but to answer your question more directly, yeah, I mean there's a ton of pressure when you take someone's money to make sure that you're performing and to make sure that your projections are. And, you know, in, in fact, in most cases, we're trying to make our projection, you know, exceed our projections so that, you know, they're extra happy with us. Sure. And, and uh, you know, I've, I've found that, interestingly, you know, that, that, that some, of, uh, some of my clients, find, you know, find that they have trouble handling that. It's, you know, it's a tough thing for them. And some of them, you know, uh, some of them do well. I mean, it's definitely added pressure. And obviously, listen, when, it's, when things are going well, it's, the pressure's not so bad. <laughs> things get more challenging. <laughs> you know, that's when, uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, and we've been pretty fortunate. I mean, we're in a good part in the market cycle. So we haven't had that, um, you know, that challenge of, you know, things going very poorly. But, but I mean, we do spend a lot of time thinking about protecting the downside. And, and we try to craft our deals so that the investors have protection and our capital is more at risk than theirs. Yeah. So talk, talk to me a little bit about uh, more about your model in terms of how you look at things. I mean, are you looking, um, you know, obviously with the, with the, when you start out with more of the single families, you know, it sounds like uh, some of those were, were, you know, buying flips or, you know, I don't know if you're rehabbing those, but on the multis, you know, are you more buy and hold? Or are you more, you know, buy, uh, correct the, the management issues, you know, bring the properties up to a snuff, uh, increase the rent rolls and then sell? Or is it a combination? Uh, what's the Yeah, problem? we're pretty after opportunistic about it. So it depends on the deal again. But um, most of what we're doing is buy and hold. This point in the market cycle, like I was saying before, um, we're preparing for a potential downturn. And our theory is if it pays for itself over a long period of time, um, we're, we're okay with that. But when we're doing the investor deals, we're usually projecting a five to seven year hold period with, you know, lots of disclaimers saying that if the market cycles at the wrong point, we're not going to sell in the bottom of the market. It just doesn't make sense to do it. So most of the stuff is buy and hold with a five or seven year hold period. Um, but when we're buying for ourselves, a lot of times we're looking at it and saying, Hey, would I be comfortable owning this for the whole term, right? It could be 20 or 30 year amortizations on the loans. And, and in some cases, we've, uh, we've kind of decided that we wouldn't mind having it, you know, that whole time. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, one of the things that's uh, always interesting to me about psychology, and I'm wondering whether it's tempted you to raise a fund now when things are good, is, uh, you know, I've seen it with clients, we certainly ran into it with our funds where, uh, you know, we, we actually, you know, with the exception of that one property I talked about, we did some good buying. Um, and, uh, and then, uh, you know, in 2009, uh, there were properties that we could, you know, like comparable properties we could buy for 30, 40% less. And those would have been phenomenal deals. I mean, the, the company, the, the properties we had, you know, come back and, and done well and whatever, and, uh, uh, you know, been able to, you know, worth a lot more now, now than they were. We, we already sold them, but, you know, but, but if we held them, um, and, but if we had bought them at 30, 40% less, it would have been right. even, even more amazing. But, uh, because everybody was running scared and it was uh, the recession or whatever, we had trouble raising additional money. So I know some of my clients in that area, that's one of the temptations to raise a fund. Uh, although, of course, you have some pressure sometimes to deploy that capital uh, because it gets harder to raise uh, capital on a deal-to-deal -deal basis in a down economy a lot of times. Have you guys, you know, what you're thinking on that? Well, I mean, we have talked about it internally, but the truth of the matter is I, 
I feel like it's so hard to time the market that it's yeah. dangerous yeah. to set money on the sidelines, yeah. um, which is why we're kind of trying to come up with the long-term philosophy of, you know, buying stuff that we're comfortable keeping through a recession. That's not to say we wouldn't sell. You know, we have a couple of properties we bought a few years ago that um, the equity positions have, you know, tripled. And uh, we feel like, you know, it might be time to sell those and deploy that capital in a different way. Um, but what we don't want to do is just sit on a pile of cash. I mean, we have to have adequate reserves, like I said, you know, to prepare for a downturn. But, uh, and have some to buy some opportunistic, might make some sense. But you have to have a lot of capital before it makes sense to park a big chunk of cash. Because the truth is, it's not like you just have to save the down payment. You know, it's hard to get investors to put money in, but it's even harder, I think, to get banks to finance stuff during a recession and downturn because they, they, banks are like most big companies overreact to the current situation because they have so much shareholder pressure. Absolutely right. That's absolutely right. So, so let me let me uh, bring it out a little bit to uh, a level uh, that will not only help our listeners who are doing deals in real estate, but are doing deals generally. So, I want to talk to you a little bit about sort of the mindset of a deal maker, and you know, and 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 what makes somebody a good deal maker versus uh, whether it's in real estate, whether it's in you know, in in doing M and A or whatever it may be, right? Because I think a deal maker, yes, they're industry specific or you know, investment type specific knowledge. But there's, in my mind, at least, something about being a deal maker versus somebody who's not a deal maker. Do you have thoughts on that? Um, yeah, I I do actually. I think. Uh, well, anyone can probably learn to negotiate and, and, and things like that. And there are tons of books on that. But the sort of drive to go make deals is sort of, it's almost innate in people. Some people just like it. Some people can't stand it. Um, I love making deals. Like, I mean, I, if I wasn't in real estate, I'd, you know, and I was doing something else, I'd probably just be making deals. Like, I, I like the idea of just, you know, brokering other people's deals. I like, I like just, you know, kind of, even sometimes I just think, well, like, if I was going to make this deal, how would I make it work even if I'm not going to do it? It's just mm. sort of how my brain works. Yeah. And so what is it? Uh, let's drill down a little bit more because I hear some of the same excitement that I get. You know, it's, uh, uh, you know, it, for me, it's more and, you know, and, and let me know if I'm hearing the same thing in you. I think I think I'm hearing some of it. You know, for me, it's more, you know, it's not about conquering anything or, or, or ego or building stuff up. It's like it's the strategy. It's the game of it. It's the it's figuring out how to how to make it work. It's, you know, it's the puzzle of it that that is a big part of it for me that excites me. Yeah, no, it is a lot like a game. Um, and um, it can be a lot of fun. Um, and also when I'm when I'm making deals, I'm usually looking at like, uh, in order to make it work, you kind of have to make it work for both sides. So some people think of it like a, you know, like a war. I, I try to think of it more like a collaboration, right? Yeah. Um, how, how do you figure out a way for um, both sides to come out ahead? I mean, in most negotiations, you know, people always feel like, well, I didn't do quite as well as I should have, you know, but, but I mean, then that's sort of healthy because if, if one side's super happy, then usually the, whoops, sorry about that. The other side's uh, not, not very happy, but um uh, but uh, yeah, at the end of the day, it's really, it's, it's just kind of fun, right? I mean, it's just kind of figuring out how to piece it together and it could be, it could be something as simple as uh, negotiating to, to buy the lot next to your house. You know, sometimes it's just like, uh, you know, there's, there's so many intangible benefits to every kind of deal and you just got to think about what makes sense. So talk to me. So you have uh, some partners and, you know, you mentioned in, 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 in these deals, um, and that's, you know, that, that in itself is a deal, right? To be in any kind of business partnership, strategic alliance, uh, you know, uh, whatever it is. Uh, 
so talk to me a little bit about uh, some of the challenges and, and opportunities, uh, you know, of uh, being in, in business partnerships. Yeah, so I'm almost all my deals are partnerships and um, and and different structures in each one. Now, uh, being an attorney, maybe I have a little bit of um, you know. Uh, over sensitivity to creating partnership agreements. Uh, sometimes that might actually be, you know, too much, right? So the, the, definitely you want to have your partnership agreements in writing. I'm not saying that, but but sometimes you can overthink this stuff. So at some level, though, the most important thing I think for a partnership is that you both have to have an alignment of interest or all three of you or five of you, however many it might be. You need to make sure that you understand what each person's role is going to be. And, and you also understand um, what the ultimate goals are. And then you need to have good communication. I've been very fortunate. I have two partners that I, that I do a, quite a few deals with, and both of them are very good friends of mine. Uh, and, and some people have trouble working with friends, but we've, we've been able to craft it in a way that works for us. And it's been really great because of that. And, and is one of those partners the guy that you drink bourbon with in the morning uh, while recording your podcast? Yeah, well, we try not to admit that we film them in the morning. So um, I guess I shouldn't have told you that off air. But uh, yeah, so it is. Um, we do usually film them in the mornings and get drunk before noon. But uh, but yeah, well, that's one of my partners. Um, and a kind of funny story about him is his name is uh, Brian Leverage. And uh, so we... <laughs> use a lot of leverage and, and I like to tell him that I, I use even more leverage because I use him and I use, I use uh, financial leverage. So I love it. You, you, you leverage leverage. That's right. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's great. So, uh, so I won't, I won't ask how much the, uh, the, the, the bourbon old fashions help the partnership. Uh, I'll just make an assumption they do. <laughs> you know, they, and it's funny when we came up with the old fashioned real estate show and the old, we have a company old fashioned management that we run as well. And um, we were trying to think of a name and we were drinking old fashions. And that's really what it came down to. We we're just just uh, sitting around a, at a steakhouse, having a couple of drinks, trying to think of what we wanted to do next. And that's where we came from it. So I love it. Well, there's a, I'll, uh, only because it relates to bourbon old fashions, I'll give a, uh, uh, there's a, a friend of mine who, who actually has a, a, a great podcast. His name was Lou Diamond. On, uh, and he has a podcast called Thrive Loud. It's all about how people thrive in life. And he's a uh, fellow professional speaker with me. And, and he and I, uh, uh, last year in July, were at the uh, NSA Influence uh, Conference in Dallas. And the hotel bar upstairs had smoky old fashions where they smoked them, you know, right when, you, uh, when they were making them. And boy, I haven't had a better smoky old fashioned than, uh, you know, in a long time. So um, I'm looking at Lou and I were talking about this July we'll be in Denver and we're hoping to find some, some uh, smoky old fashions and we're both bourbon guys uh, on the old fashioned. Right. Fashions. Well, I was just in Denver at a, um, a multifamily conference last weekend, actually, and uh, I did not find a good smoky old fashioned. So I wish you luck. Uh, okay. All right. Well, hopefully you can do better than me. I, I found a couple of decent old fashions, but they weren't, they weren't really excellent old fashions. So. Oh, interesting. All right. Well, I'm going to do some meetings in Denver a couple of days before because I have some clients out there and uh, other contacts. So maybe they can stand me right. And then uh, the conference that I'm out is out at the Gaylord, the new Gaylord Resort, which is by the airport. Um, so we'll see how they do. I don't know. I'll, I'll report back, listeners, uh, on my old-fashioned uh, journey in, uh, in, in Denver. <laughs> well, maybe if you get lucky, the, um, this episode will come out before you head to Denver and then somebody will give you a few tips ahead of time. 
Yeah, no, unfortunately, this is going to definitely come out later because we're running a few months behind. But, uh, but, but who knows? Well, uh, I'll see if I can find them. So um, any last thoughts on, uh, on just, um, you know, uh, either ways to do deals right or, or, or big mistakes that people make, whether it's in deals in general or, or specifically in real estate? Uh, well, I think the biggest mistake that you can make is forcing a deal, right? I mean, like if yeah. a deal doesn't work, it doesn't work. And and a lot of times, especially when the market's like it is now in real estate, people look at deals and they're just like, I need to be in something. I need to be buying something. And um, that can be a, that's the, that's how you get into 2006 buying, right? That's why you get that frenzy of buying that causes everyone to lose a pile of money. And you, you don't want to be in that situation. Hey, no question. You, you speak in my language. I mean, my whole framework in my uh, authentic negotiating book is clarity, detachment, and equilibrium. And you're talking about detachment. The best deal makers I know are detached from the outcome. You know, they come up with a clear set of objectives uh, on what works for them, what works doesn't work for them in the deal, and they're equally comfortable. I mean, they have a preference to get the deal done, but they're equally comfortable doing the deal and not doing the deal, depending upon whether it meets that, that set of criteria. Well, I'm going to have to work on that because I always prefer to get the deal done. <laughs> but uh, but uh, I, do, uh, I do try to step back from it and recognize that not every deal works. Yeah. And listen, the way I always say it is that you should have a preference, right? Because why are you wasting your time if you don't have a preference? But ultimately, you know, it either lines up or it doesn't. And, and if it doesn't make sense, you know, then the smartest deal makers don't do it. So uh, hopefully, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting. That there's a conversation I've been quoted uh, in, in various deal, you know, industry press, more on the corporate side. Uh, you know, I, I do stuff in, in, in uh, the financial services space, and there's a lot of money coming into that space uh, in terms of uh, uh, VC and private equity and uh, family offices and all these people who are investing. And one of the things I always talk about in that space is deal discipline. You know, when, when, when capital is available, and, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to maintain deal discipline sometimes, and that's when people make bad deals. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. So, uh, so Jeff, before I ask you my last question here, uh, you know, uh, where can people find out more about you if they want to uh, check out uh, you or your podcast or anything else you want to let them know about? Uh, sure. So, um, the easiest way to get a hold of me is actually just to go to oldfashionedrealestate.com. Um, and then you can check out the podcast from there as well. But it's just youtube.com slash oldfashionedrealestate. Uh, so those are the easiest ways to get a hold of me. Can you send me an email at jeff at oldfashionedrealestate.com? Um, I think since there's a little bit of delay before the show comes out, my uh, my personal website will be back up and running. Then I'm redeveloping it right now. It's jeffreyholst.com. Great. Um, so Jeff, listen, I, I appreciate that. Uh, and, and, you know, folks definitely, uh, listen, uh, uh, from what I've uh, told them, the people we have in common, you know, Jeff's doing some really, really good stuff. And, uh, and, you know, whether it's in real estate vesting or whether it's in finding, you know, what you love after, uh, after having some health challenges, you know, I, I think, uh, you, you're an inspiration for a lot of people in that Jeff. And, uh, uh, so I appreciate you, you you being on the show. I have one last question for you, um, which is the question I always ask last is about authenticity because it's one of my highest values. And for me, that is about alignment within a truth, like living a life that's aligned for us coming from an eternal place, uh, because I believe that really the world, our lives in the world is manifest from within. Uh, so it's not about external expectation or morality, but it's about that alignment. And I'm wondering uh, how that, uh, you know, what, what you think, uh, how you view authenticity and how that plays into your life and, and, and your business and how you make deal decisions. Uh, I'd love to get you, your input on that. Uh, sure. Uh, so for me, the most important thing is to be doing what 
you believe and and especially when you're taking investor money um making sure that you're only positioning their money in a way that you have your own money positioned but but i mean for me like what we're doing with the show the old-fashioned real estate show is is we're trying to give back because we've been very fortunate i mean i don't really have to um, put any more deals together. I can go sit on the beach and, you know, drink my ties or something. But uh, I'll probably be old fashioned if I was on the beach, honestly. But, <laughs> um, but uh, you know, to be authentic to myself and to, to my values is to help other people achieve those kind of dreams themselves, whatever it might be. And even if it's not real estate, I, um, I have a real passion to help people um, find what it is that they want to do in life and, and, and be able to live it. I mean, I, I keep saying, uh, in fact, I, I'm, I've been saying this over and over to people so much that I'll probably have a hashtag or something eventually is it's really, it's your last life right now. This is the last chance you have at being alive and you have to, um, you have to live it like it is your last life ever. So, so usually I end it there, but I'm tempted based upon what you said and your, and your history. Uh, do you have a next big adventure? Plan? Yeah, actually, you know, you were talking about Nepal at the beginning and I was reading about um, hiking to um, Everest Base Camp, um, which is about a two-week hike. So maybe taking yes. a helicopter might have been. <laughs> um, but our, our next big thing is in February, we're going to climb Mount Kilimanjaro, the highest point in Africa. So we're, we're working on training for that right now. I just... Uh, just ran a 10k to get ready and um, taking up swimming because apparently swimming helps with altitude a lot, um, the oxygen elements of altitude. So I'm just doing those things to get ready for uh, climbing Mount Kilimanjaro. Oh, that's fantastic. You know, I, it's funny. I was just reading about the whole swimming thing as well, because uh, we're doing why am I, uh, uh, one of the entrepreneurial groups I'm involved with uh, my, my, um, a bunch of uh, uh, former entrepreneurs organization members. Um, we do a couple of retreats here. In fact, they were the guys I was in Nepal with. And yeah, and that is, it's a 12 day hike just to uh, trek to base camp. So we, we were only going to be there for 12 days. So we took the helicopter, but we did end up trekking for about four days, four or five days uh, elsewhere. Um, but in any case, uh, there's a, there's a 17, 18,000 foot uh, mountain outside of Mexico City. I'm drawing a blank on the name of it that uh, uh, it looks like we're going to be doing in February. And that's uh, much higher altitude than we were at at least trekking in Nepal. Now, well, I was 22,000 feet in the helicopter, but, but, um, and yeah, I was reading about how sw they recommend swimming to get, you know, uh, especially if you can't train at altitude to, you know, start building up that VO2 max. Uh, so uh, you and I may be doing some of the same training. Yeah. Well, and when you're in Denver in the, the summer, there's some opportunities to do some, you know, 14,000 foot hikes and stuff like that. You might yes. want to take a day to do that. Yes. And I, I plan on doing that. In fact, I'm going to, I'm going to see a friend of mine, uh, a good friend and, uh, and client who I helped sell his company who, uh, who now lives in, in Breckenridge and uh, there's altitude there. And, uh, you know, so we're, we're, yeah, I'm definitely going to take advantage of that. Well, this is great, Jeff. Uh, so I uh, appreciate you coming on. Uh, I am uh, excited about not only what you're doing in business, but uh, these sort of, uh, uh, this desire uh, for for adventure uh, that you and I both have, uh, and I'm sure we'll, uh, we'll we'll compare some notes uh, as time goes on. I appreciate having you on the show. No, I appreciate you having me. Thanks, and thank you, Fueling Deals listeners, for tuning in. Remember, there's only one difference between companies that grow inorganically and those that don't, and it's unrelated to size, amount of capital, or any other factor. Other than that, the owners and executives of companies that do deals make a decision to do deals, and then they take action. Well, it's time to refuel. So until next week, Corey Kupfer signing out. Thank you again for tuning in. Be sure to leave Fueling Deals a rating and review on iTunes and Google. Check out all our episodes at fuelingdeals.com to find out more resources to accelerate your business growth.